Welcome to lesson 11 of Christianity 101. We're going to talk about tithes and offerings. It's a very foundational doctrine, very critical doctrine. In some circles, it can be a little controversial. The controversy arises out of ignorance more than anything. It kind of shocks me to think some pastors which would actually refuse to teach on tithes and offerings and that some would even say it's not New Testament or it's not for us today. We're going to cover this. We're going to see some patterns arise. We're going to see what the scriptures have to say because as a Christian, as a pastor, I'm not to be only interested in your income, which I need to be interested in your income because we want to see you prosper and that's the money coming in to your life. But ultimately, my job as a pastor is to make sure your outcome, not just your income, it's a play on words, not just your income, but your outcome is blessed of God too. So we're going to pray, then we'll get into this. Father, we thank you for this 11th lesson for Christianity 101. Bless our understanding. Give us revelation knowledge concerning tithes and offerings. And as your word promised in Corinthians, may grace abound to every member, every listener, that they may maintain this good work as well. We thank you, Father, for the grace to be tithers and givers. May we prove you now. And Father, show yourself faithful on our behalf. Pour out a blessing, rebuke the devourer, and may every member be a tither. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at our lesson. Every Christian is called to be a giver. We know that for a fact. Uh, we're called to be a giver, not a taker, not a, th a thief, not stingy. The Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs, the liberal soul. That has nothing to do with politics, but liberality, these are King James, Old English words for generous. The liberal soul shall be made fat. And the Bible encourages us to freely we have received, freely give. We know stinginess, miserly, miserness, is that a word? To be miserly is not biblical. The Bible says there is he that withholds more than is good, and yet it tends to poverty. And so one of the things we've got to be careful of is that we are generous in our giving and that we are biblical givers. God is a giver and he put the same nature into us and now we give. Uh, like John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Now that that nature is in us, our love in us should motivate, motivate us to be givers. And I'm even reminded now of Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit, gentleness, kindness, goodness. The word goodness in the Greek has with it this flavor in the original Greek of generosity. So it's not just good for goodness sake, but it's a goodness that's generous. And lots of times when we talk about someone being good, we are referencing their generosity. You talk about a boss who was good to you. He was probably very generous to you. So we even see in the nine fruit of the spirit, there's a hint of generosity that should be manifesting in our life. In the New Testament, we give of our time serving. We give time serving. We give time in prayer. We give time encouraging. We give time working, etc. And we give of our finances. And this is where people, this is where if you're not careful, the simple teaching of this lesson will either in, encourage you and impel you to give, or it's going to cause stinginess, greed, and poverty to rise up out of your heart. I can't necessarily put anything into you but the word of God but the word preached can also cause things to manifest in you you may not know that uh, you have anger in you till I say you've got to forgive why do I got to forgive oh no there's not just for unforgiveness there there's also anger too by giving we can manifest God's nature already in us 
And so this subject of tithes and offerings is critical because the Lord wants to use it to bless our lives. He wants to use it to deliver us from the devourer. And we're going to look at these verses. But we have to be willing to obey every scripture, every doctrine that we can find. And the reason for biblical commandments on tithes and offerings is to bless your financial realm and to bless your natural realm. All the commandments we obey for forgiveness, the commandments we, forget, we, we obey for Bible study, sharing our faith, these things bless us spiritually. The Bible talks about uh, being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Spiritual blessings are great. Forgiveness sets you free in your soul. Studying the Bible sets you free in your spirit man, so to speak. It builds you up spiritually. Sharing your faith does a spiritual work. But tithes and offerings, this is a commandment. This is a doctrine that's going to bless your natural and prosper you according to the will of God. So look at our first verse here, the first offering, Genesis chapter 4. Verses three through five. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the earth an offering unto the Lord. So here we have an offering, fruit of the earth, offering. The fruit of the earth, uh, by the way, takes a lot of work. If you've ever done any kind of agricultural work, you've got to plow, you've got to break up the fallow ground, you've got to pull stumps, you've got to pull rocks, you've got to break up the dirt clods. Then you've got to sow, then you've got to cover then you got to water. Once you've watered and sown and watered and watered some more and the sunlight hits it, heats it up. Now that it begins to spring up, now you've got to cultivate. Cultivate is a fancy word for weed. You got to go in there and pull the weeds out so the weeds don't choke out what you've sown. And you have to tend this garden with backbreaking labor every day until you harvest. And then truly the harvest is the most laborious work. It's the most laborious of everything you've done. And now finally you have your pumpkin or you have your zucchini or you have your squash or your tomato or your cucumber, whatever your your fruit is or your vegetable. Very labor intensive. So this offering, when it's presented, is going to be a very hard earned offering. Hold that in mind. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. So he also brought something, firstlings of the flock, which means that's the newborn, the first babies that were born. And of the fat thereof, that means the best. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth or angry and his countenance fell. Now it has often been taught, and I only point this out because I want us to understand the heart behind everything. It has often been taught not maliciously, but in error, that the reason the Lord respected Abel's offering but rejected Cain's offering is because Cain's offering was bloodless. Cain's offering was fruits and vegetables. And while Abel's was firstlings and the fat thereof, that means the best, that that means he shed blood. And of course, the the implication that is taught erroneously out of ignorance, I believe, or lack of understanding, is that the reason Abel's was accepted is because he was atoning for sin and Cain's was rejected because he didn't bring anything that could atone for sin. Now, a while back, a couple years ago, I really researched this out. I easily had 10 reasons why uh, 
Cain's offering had nothing to do with blood and why it was rejected, not for anything to do with blood. I can't give you all 10 of those off the top of my head right now, but we'll point a couple of things out that I can remember off the top of my head. Number one, what sin has been committed? No record of any sin. The Bible doesn't say this is a sin offering. So there's no sin recorded as being committed that now must be atoned for. Point number one. Number two, Paul said without the law, there is no sin. So we're a couple hundred years, if not a thousand years before the law. Technically, there's no sin to have been committed to require atoning. Which brings us to point three. If there has been a sin atoned for, we don't have any law prescribing that an animal must shed its blood for the remission of sins. So now we're already very heavy into conjecture that number one, there was a sin. Number two, they knew what the sin was. And number three, they knew the prescription to atone for the sin. And now Cain willfully rejected that. But I give you the fourth point, which is the most critical. The word offering here in this passage, he brought an offering unto the Lord. It's the same word over and over again in these three verses. And it's the word minka, M-I-N-C-H-A-A, I believe, minka. There's some phlegm in there because it's a uh, Semitic uh, language. Uh, it means a bloodless offering. It specifically means no bloodshed. And it's used throughout the entire Old Testament to talk about offerings of water, offerings of fruits and vegetables, offerings of animals that were never sacrificed. So I want you to see that so you understand this is an offering. This is not a, an atonement for sin. This is an offering freely given out of their heart. Notice both men brought an offering to the Lord. The Lord doesn't need anything we have to offer. We know that. But the offering is our way of showing honor, respect, and appreciation to God. The offering is our way of showing him we honor him, we respect him, we appreciate him, we love him. You know, when you love somebody... You can't help but want to spend some money on them. You can't help but want to give them something. Even little children, that begins to come out of their divine nature that God put in them as, as, as humans, that they begin to want to give gifts to mommy. It's a way of showing thanks and a way of showing love and uh, wanting to do something for someone. That's why we give offerings. I often wonder, Christians who never give anything to the Lord, do they appreciate anything? Are they that hard and callous or just that stingy with their money? When you're in love with a woman, you'll spend some money on that girl. When you're in love with a man, you want to buy him nice stuff. When you love your kids, any parent knows this, you just find out you're pregnant. You're just thinking about getting pregnant. You're buying money for this kid you haven't even had yet that you're already in love with. You already picked out all five of their names and you've already planned their wedding because you're a mama and you're in love with this child. You're already setting aside money to spend on something you love. Uh, follow the money. You'll see where your love is. No money, no love. The Lord is never impressed or moved by an amount or size of an offering. He is impressed with the heart and motivation behind the offering. So it's not the size of the offering that impresses God. It's the heart behind it. And I think we understand that. I, I like to use the analogy of little children. My children are still small. And they'll, do, they'll scribble all day long on a piece of paper. And it is by no means Picasso or a Van Gogh or my new favorite artist from the 19th century, Solomon J. Solomon, uh, because I used one of his pieces of art for a book. It's not a Solomon J. Solomon piece of artwork, but it's their best with all of their heart, and it's spelled daddy with the A backwards or the D backwards, and they did it just for me. And that piece of art 
take center place on the, on the refrigerator. And as they get bigger, their artwork gets better. As we mature in Christ, our offerings ought to be more heartfelt. And even the quality in the natural should improve as well. The Lord is impressed with the heart and the motivation behind the offering. Abel's offering was accepted and he earned God's respect. Cain's offering was rejected and he didn't earn any respect from God. Why? Well, I've already given you four reasons why it had nothing to do with blood. Because from the original language, even Abel's offerings were bloodless. Now, keep in mind, God doesn't need the fruits and the vegetables and he doesn't need the lambs or the sheep. So maybe they brought these to this altar, maybe a rock, maybe there was a place Jehovah met with them and they set it before them and maybe the, uh, Abel came out and set the little lambs and the little fat thereof, the, the, the big healthy sheep thereof and they just said, Lord, this is yours and we worship you and they turned around and went away. Maybe fire came down from heaven and consumed it or maybe, I don't know, that's the biblical precedent through the book of uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Judges. When God received an offering, fire would appear and consume it. And that was his way of saying, thank you, I received that. We don't know what happened here. We just know they presented it to the Lord. Why was Cain's rejected? This is critical for us if we're gonna be biblical tithers and givers. Genesis 4, 6 and 7 says, and the Lord said unto Cain, why are you, I'm gonna kind of abbreviate, paraphrase, why are you so angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And why you got this attitude? Why are you pouting? If you had done this joyfully, would you not be accepted? Oh, see, King James says, if thou doest well, which implies if we take it that at face value, if thou doest well, if you had obeyed the law. Again, what law has been given? No record of any law being given. Every command the Lord had given to Adam and Eve has been recorded up until now. There's no law given. So what's the Lord asking him? The, the Hebrew tells us, if thou doest well. Well means joyfully rejoicing in hope. So if you'd have done this active, this action, if you'd have performed this service joyfully, rejoicing in hope, would you have not been accepted? And if thou doest not well, or the inverse in the Hebrew is, if you, if you do this begrudgingly, and see, that should start to kind of trigger some other scriptures in our memory. God loves a cheerful giver. Let each man give, not of constraint, but as he is predetermined or uh, decided in his own heart. Not begrudgingly. If thou doest this begrudgingly, sin lies at the door. And that tells us that no matter what we're doing for the Lord, if we do it with an attitude, sin is present. Sin lies at the door and unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. One translation says thou must rule over him. You must get the victory over attitude. One of the things you're going to have to do as a strong Christian is keep your heart right concerning tithes and offerings. Know that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. It is all his. He needs none of it. He would gladly give you all of it. But what he wants to make sure he has first and foremost is your heart and my heart. And the quickest way to get the Lord to touch your stuff is to get greedy. You start getting greedy, the Lord will start touching it, say, give that away, give that to me, sow that, get rid of that. He wants to make sure he has nothing but your heart. And if he has nothing but your heart, he'll give you the desires of your heart. You start getting greedy, he'll start drying things up on you. Judge your heart. Cain was rejected because he gave his offering begrudgingly. He didn't really want to give it, but he did so, he wouldn't lose face in the eyes of his brother. I might say that's conjecture. That's kind of what I see. 
He didn't necessarily, we know from, from what the Lord said, he didn't necessarily want to. It was a begrudging gift. But maybe it was service time. And he said, man, I don't want my brother to show me up again. I guess I got to bring something. Well, he brought three lambs and a goat last time, and it was a beautiful goat. I'm bringing four baskets of my best tomatoes, and I'm bringing the biggest pumpkin this world has ever seen. I'm going to show him up. His attitude was wrong. He was in competition, begrudgingly. He saw Abel prepare an offering, and he felt like he had to compete, kind of like our Christmases with family and gift-giving. Now, again, that's probably conjecture, but I think we could see how that might play out. What we know for sure is the offering has to be joyfully or the Lord will not receive it. And when the Lord receives your offering, according to the story here, he doesn't just receive your offering, he receives you because your offering is an extension of you in your heart. Uh, just like when I buy things for my wife or my children, it's an extension and an expression of me and my love for them. And it means a lot to them because of the heart I did it with. The first offering teaches us to be cheerful givers without a spirit of competition. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says. Let me read that to you real quick. Every man give according as he purposes in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly. That's what the Hebrew said. If thou doest this begrudgingly. You see that 2 Corinthians 9, 7 summarizes in one verse the, the horrific experiences of Cain's first offering. Every man according as he purposes in his own heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver or a joyful giver. It's the exact same thing the Lord told Cain when he had rejected him and then spoke to him to get him out of his little pity party. That's the first offering. Let's look at the first tithe. Tithe means 10th part. This is 10% of all your increase before taxes. And the reason we know it's before taxes is if you tithe after your taxes, let's say you make 100,000 in a year, and Uncle, so the tithe on 100,000 is 10,000, that's 10%. If, if you tithe after taxes, it's not gonna be 10% of what, what the Lord gave you. Now the Lord gives you your income, but Uncle Sam rightly and justly gets his portion. And we know Jesus Christ endorses paying your taxes. If Uncle Sam gets his money before God gets his offering or his tithe, then Uncle Sam will always control your ability to serve God. And there's therefore no separation of church and state. So if Uncle Sam gets 30% on $100,000 income, then you're tithing on 70,000, which means your tithe is only gonna be 7,000 when God says it should be 10,000 because it should be a full 10%. So we tithe on what we make before taxes and that takes faith. You wanna make sure that you're obedient to the Bible and not necessarily only to men. As Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Pay your taxes for sure. But just because Uncle Sam gets 20%, 18%, or 40% of your income, that doesn't mean you don't give God 10% first. Because the tithe declares, when you're obedient to it, that I am free from this world system of money and mammon, and I obey God. And even if Uncle Sam takes 50%, I'm still going to tithe, and God's going to make the other 40% that I have left, or actually it's going to be less than that, God's going to make that go even further, and he'll bless me. The tithe was begun by Abram as a way to honor God for all of his goodness. Now let's say this real quick. One of the anti-tithing arguments today is that, 
Well, the tithing is in the Old Testament. Yes, it is. And so is worship. So is salvation. So are demons. Demons are Old Testament. Angels are Old Testament. Jesus is Old Testament. Thou shalt not kill is Old Testament. So the argument that it's Old Testament is very ignorant. It's almost so wretchedly ignorant, it's not even worth debating. It's Old Testament. What's your point? Yes, it is Old Testament. So is the promised Messiah. So is the Gentiles being grafted in. So is don't commit adultery. So is don't prostitute your daughter. So is don't worship demons. So is don't fellowship with a necromancer or a sorcerer. So is um, don't have sex with a dog. That's all Old Testament too. Are you free to trespass that? Of course not. But technically, tithing isn't just Old Testament. They'll also say, well, it's under the law. So is worship. So is praise. So is forgiveness. So serving God. Again, totally ignorant, backwards argument. Backwards is our southern way of saying backwards. Backwards is a more backwards way of saying backwards. No, tithing actually predates the law by 430 years. Now about 400 years. Tithing was established by Abram, the father of our faith, when he worshipped a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, Melchizedek. I shouldn't say he worshiped him. He came to him, the high priest of Salem, that is Jerusalem, the priest of the uh, the king of Salem, that is the king of peace by translation. And he presented him the tithes and offerings. So let's read this uh, here from Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. That's a type and shadow of communion. You have a priest The king of peace, bringing bread and wine to a disciple of God. It sounds like the Lord's Supper. And he was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. So there's a couple things we see here. We see that Abram is returning back from the war of Chedorlaomer. King Chedorlaomer had uh, attacked the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is before they were judged, obviously. Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time. And Chedorlaomer and the four kings of the valley had come up against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's three other kings. And they, they routed them in this military battle and kidnapped everybody. And Sod, uh, Lot and his family was taken prisoner. So Abram gets together his men, which is only like 380 guys in his household. And they go to war against four kings. Or maybe it was five kings. I can't remember. And the nearly less than 400 of Abram, and he's in his 80s and 90s, They're able to beat five kings in those armies. And so what they're bringing back is the spoils of war when the high priest, the king of Salem, he's both a king and a priest. He's the priest of the most high God, but he's also a king and he's the king of peace. This is how we know when Psalms talks about it, it's a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. He comes out to meet Abram and he declares a blessing over Abram before Abram ever does anything. And when Abram realizes how blessed he is, Abram gives him the tithe, which is in a pattern of how things work later on in the Mosaic law under the old covenant. And even now today, God blesses his people first. And in response to their blessing, they take 10% of it and say, thank you. We've been so blessed. 
and folks never turn around to say thank you. I kind of, I, I see now a pattern in Luke, Luke 17 about, I think it's Luke 17, maybe Luke 15. The grateful leper. Wow, wow. 10 lepers. This, does, this is. <laughs> 10 lepers. They stand afar off. Thou Jesus, son of the most high God, son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We're lepers. And the Lord Jesus says, go and show the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony. Be cleansed, be healed. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. All right? They're blessed. And one, realizing he was cleansed, now that means the leprosy is gone. You know, leprosy is a bacterial infection, makes skin scaly, it benumbs uh, the extremities, so you get infection from injuries and causes rotten decay. They're cleansed, uh, but they're still missing parts. One out of 10, what percentage is that? 10%. One out of 10 turns around and comes to the Lord face to face now because he's cleansed. He has the biblical right, the mosaic right under the law to present himself publicly now. He comes to the feet of the rabbi, Jesus. He throws himself down and he begins to worship him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's why he's called in theology, the grateful leper. He bows down and begins to say, thank you. And the Lord says, uh, where are there not 10? Where are the other nine? And he looks down and he says, uh, be thou made whole. He was already cleansed, but because he came and presented himself as a living tithe, we might say, a living tenth, the Lord was able to do more. And the Lord said, be thou whole. And we know that means fingers grew back, nose grew back, missing ears, earlobes grew back. Whatever was missing grew back. The nine went away cleansed. That's wonderful. You can go back to your families now, but you're, we're calling you Jimmy Nubs or maybe Jed, Jedediah Nubs because you're missing parts. But this grateful tithe allowed God to do more. That's a powerful allegory. We've been so blessed. We've been absolutely so blessed. We can't help but turn back around and give him a 10% to show him our thanks. Plus it's commanded. It's a commanded thank you. I do the same thing with my kids. What do you say? Oh, thank you, daddy. I'm teaching them to be thankful. This Melchizedek represents Jesus. He was the king of Salem, the king of peace. He brought bread and wine, that's communion. He was the priest of the most high God. And he then, then he blessed Abram. And because he blessed Abram, Abram gave this king priest, of, uh, this priest king of peace, tithes of all he had. God increased Abram and Abram tithed on the increase. This is the establishment of tithe or tithing by our father of faith. The Bible says in the New Testament, we're of the household of faith. We're of the blessing of Abraham. We're of the blessing of Abraham because we're of the lineage of Abraham. Abraham had two, uh, two genealogies, two seeds. One, he, the Lord said, would be like sand. One would be like stars. Sand speaks of his natural progeny, his natural lineage, the people that came from his loins, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, Ishmael, and the, the nations of Ishmael. But the other speaks of stars. That's his spiritual progeny. Sand is of the earth. It's earthy. Stars are of the heaven. They're heavenly, like Revelation, or 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. The glory of the, of the uh, earthly is terrestrial. The glory of the heavens is celestial. 
And so we're part of the celestial, or we would say spiritual legacy and lineage of Abraham. The born again ones that contain the light of God. And we all shine at different magnitudes in the skies. This is the first example of tithing in the Bible demonstrated by the father of our faith to the Lord Jesus. Now we have a lot more teaching on this in our pod school lesson. If you'll get on podschool.org, uh, we have a whole, whole set of teachings. I think there's nine lessons on tithes and offerings. And I go through all the first, I think the first three or four offerings of the Bible and you see a pattern very clearly arise. And then we look at all the first three or four tithes demonstrated in the Bible. And then we look at tithing under the Old Testament and you see a very clear pattern arise. Nine lessons, 45, 50 minutes each. It's almost eight hours, over eight hours of teaching on tithes and offerings. So you can go into more depth than just, just this one 45 minute lesson. We want you to know Anything we teach and we practice on a regular basis, we have done our due diligence to, to search it out scripturally. I'm not interested in doing unnecessary work. I'm not honestly interested in doing unnecessary sacrifice. I don't want to make an unnecessary sacrifice. But if we can prove it biblically, we got to do it. And the more Bible we do, the more blessed, established, protected, divine, endorsed by God we can be. So look at this next section. Moses' law gave guidelines for tithing. Now the reason Moses' law comes along and gives guidelines is because tithing was established by Abram. Then it was really picked up and reinstituted, we might say, by Jacob. After Jacob had his famous uh, dream of Jacob's ladder and the angels coming and going and ministering to him, he woke up and he said, Holy Lord God Almighty, you're really taking care of me like that. Angels coming and going that I can't even see taking care of me. If you, Lord, will be my God, if you'll keep me in peace, if you'll bring me back here again and take care of me, I will give you tithes of all. That's everything the Lord does, does for us in the New Testament. He's our Lord. He takes care of us. He keeps us in peace. He brings us back again in peace. Why would we not give him tithes of all? Jacob recovenants to be a tither. And so by the time Moses comes along, tithing has been carried on by the patriarchs and the Lord in his wisdom and in his idea or his desire to bless his people, he said, you're going to do this. Here's how I want it done. And everything, every law God gives us is with a purpose to reveal his nature behind it so we can do things more in sync with his heart. If all we ever do is obey laws, and, and by the way, the New Testament's full of over a thousand laws, the New Testament. If all we ever do is obey laws without knowing the heart behind them, that will make us legalistic. But if we can do laws and understand the heart behind it, we're not under the law. We're just obeying the rules. We're, we're playing by the rules of the game. I, I like to use, for example, the speed limit. What's the purpose behind the speed limit? Well, it's to keep people safe. And even the police will acknowledge, they'll, they'll let you go five, six, seven miles over. Because they, re they recognize you can uh, handle the car at that registered limit, six and seven miles over. But you start hitting 10 miles an hour over, they're going to ticket you nearly every time. But the law of the speed limit is to keep people safe, to keep people from sliding off the road on curves. But now, if you understand the heart behind the speed limit, and let's say you injure yourself or your loved one is injured and you have to rush them to the hospital, you're not going to do 35 miles an hour all the way there. You're going to double that speed limit on straightaways and you're not even afraid if a police officer gets behind you. 
because you know you're justified because you have the heart of the law. I throw that out there as kind of a side note to help us understand the difference between legalism and keeping the law of God. We're not delivered from laws. Actually, today, you're under more laws than any species has ever been under because the Old Testament had 613 laws. We have over 1,000 in the New Testament and over 250 of the Old Testament laws are in the New Testament. Plus, you have 12 specific laws, the law of love, the law of uh, death, the law of grace. There's all these laws the Bible calls laws in the New Testament that we're still under. And then there's the federal government laws, the city laws, the county laws, the health inspector laws, the building code laws. Boy, it's legalistic. I'll tell you something even trippier. This microphone right here is on a frequency that is regulated by the federal government. And as of right now of this recording, we have two microphones in this church that are illegal. We are breaking the law because the frequency is out of date. The federal government bought out that frequency range. We have not updated those. We don't hardly ever use those mics. I understand the law behind it. I'm not trying to break federal law and they're not really strict about it, but until we can replace them, if I need to pass a microphone and somebody use it for five minutes, I'm not gonna interfere with a helicopter or a FEMA, which is one of the reasons they buy up those frequency bandwidths. We're under more laws now. Even the cameras we're recording with have laws upon their, their, their manufacture and their disposal and their handling. Even your mattress comes with a tag that says, do not remove upon penalty of law. We're under more law than we've ever been. We need to find out the heart behind any guideline God gives us on anything. And by the way, I think most churches in any town have a couple frequencies that are federally illegal today. Just so you know, we're not trying to break the law. We just haven't spent the money yet. <laughs> Moses' law gave guidelines for tithing. Leviticus 27:30. the tithe is the Lord's. And this is, this is a law. Here's what the Lord wants us to know. The tithe is the Lord's. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna convert. The second you have something, 10% of it is God's. And it's holy unto him. Now the word holy or set apart, sanctified, holy, hallowed, is how it's translated in the King James. The word hallowed is a very funny word in the Hebrew because hallowed is a word that based on context can mean holy or cursed. An example you see of, of tithing is in Joshua, first couple chapters, when they take Jericho. And the Lord says of Jericho, he said, everything in that city is hallowed, holy unto me. Bring it into my treasury. Now, coincidentally, Jericho is the first of 10 cities they conquered. Every city after that, Israel was allowed to keep the spoils of war. But Jericho, which names mean, mean sweet-smelling savor, which is what the Bible says offerings and tithes are to him, a sweet-smelling savor. Jericho, everything, every spoil of war was to go to the temple or the tabernacle. Every battle after that, all the spoils of war was Israel's to keep. You see a giant military example of tithing. He said, do not keep the spoils of war, they are hallowed lest they be accursed. The funny thing is in the Hebrew, it's the same word. If we didn't know how to translate it, we'd say, don't keep the hallowed thing lest it becomes hallowed. So the word flip-flops depending on what you do with it. If it's tithed and brought to the Lord, it's holy. If it's embezzled or stolen from God, it's accursed. And so the story happens 
Achan, we know if you know your Bible, after Jericho, he steals the spoils of war. He steals some goodly Babylonian garments, a couple shekels of silver, a wedge of the gold of Ophir, and he hides it in the bottom of his tent, digs a hole, and it curses Israel, and they can't stand before the enemies of the next city, Ai. And the Lord has to kind of clean house and says, you have committed a trespass. Somebody has robbed me. And they find out that it's in the house of Achan and it curses him. Achan's name means troublesome in Hebrew. So you see there, it's holy unto the Lord. And the second you touch it, you begin to trouble your household. Look at our next point, Deuteronomy 14. Tithing causes you to increase year by year. Why would you not want to do that? Tithing causes you to increase year by year. Why would you not tithe? That's a promise. In fact, let me read you that verse. We've got some time here. Deuteronomy 14, 22. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that thy field may bring forth year by year. Now, they were an agrarian society, so you tithed on what you needed to increase. If they tithed on the field their field would increase year by year. You tithe on your business, your business can increase year by year. You tithe on your income, your income, your life, it'll increase year by year. Point number three, tithing allows God to bless you. Malachi 3.10, one of the most famous passages ever on tithing. When you tithe, the Lord is able to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Now, Malachi, understand the context. Malachi is a prophet, what's called a prophet of restoration. He was raised up by God to come and prophesy to the newly restored Israel in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. So Israel has really, within the last hundred years of, of this time, the writing, 150 years, has come back into being a nation, having been in captivity for uh, uh, several generations, over, over 150 years. 70 years, they were in captivity and they began to come out. Zerubbabel came out. It took him about 100 years to rebuild the temple. Then Ezra and Nehemiah came. So anyway, some of these guys, have, they haven't been, they've been in captivity for over 150, 200 years. So Malachi is raised up. God promotes him as a prophet of restoration. His job is to help the temple worship begin to run smoothly again. The whole theme of the book of Malachi is honor. And so by the time you get to chapter three, God's talking about honoring God with money through the prophet Malachi. But the, the key we got to catch is, he says, if you'll bring in all the tithes into the storehouse and quit stealing from me, I will open unto you the windows of heaven. Now hear that. I will open up the windows of heaven, which means they had been closed because they had been stealing the tithe. You stop stealing the tithe, the windows are open, according to Malachi. I don't know any other way to translate that or interpret it. When the windows of heaven are open in your life, God is able to bless you again. So that's a good reason to tithe. Tithing causes the devourer to be rebuked on your behalf. And I teach this in our demonology curriculum on pod school, that tithing is a form of spiritual warfare. The Lord said, if you'll tithe, bring in all the tithes of the storehouse, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Now, the devour is anything that could devour your life, your field, your income, your business, your health, your substance. Criminals are devourers. Uh, calamity is a devourer. Sickness and disease is a devourer. Car accidents are devourers. Anything. The, the devourer, he's out rebuke the devourer. If the Lord himself, who is a person, if he is speaking to something and lets us know it's an entity 
that can be rebuked. And tithing allows God to do the rebuking. It's another good reason to, to tithe. New Testament guidelines for giving. Again, we have a lot more teaching on this on pod school. Give as you purpose or predetermine in your heart. Uh, not grudgingly, but as each man decides in his heart. Don't let anybody tell you what to give in an offering except God. I have a right biblically to tell you to tithe 10% because the Bible says 10%. But anything above and beyond 10% is an offering and that's between you and God. And there are times as the pastor, I'll say, here's our big project. Let me encourage all of you to pray and talk to the Lord who told us to do this project and ask him what offering amount he wants you to give. And if it's bigger than you can do in one offering, that's all right. Stretch it out, believe the money. And so I can do that, but I don't have a right to say, all right, 69.95, 29.95. This is a Isaiah 61.15 offering. So if you give $61.15, you'll be blessed. That's not biblical. Unless it's a, you know, your offering is on a $611.50 paycheck, then the tithe is 61.15. You purpose in your heart how you give, but it has to be a tithe because that's what the Bible says. And you want to give offerings too, not just tithes, but offerings. And so you know, my wife and I and my children practice what we preach. All of my children, from the time they were conceived, began to tithe off any money that came in. You know, when people find out you're pregnant, they start blessing you, giving you money, gift cards, stuff. We tithe on gift cards. So all of my children have the testimony that before they were even born, they were already tithers. My wife and I tithe on everything, gift cards, gift certificates, anything that we're given that we can convert, we tithe on. We tithe before taxes. We tithe on birthday money, Christmas money, anniversary money, pastor appreciation money. Anything we're given that can be preached with, we tithe on. Uh, and then this church, this church is a tithing church. And by that, I mean, we take 10% of our general tithes and offerings and that money goes to my pastor's ministry. We tithe it to Mark Barclay Ministries. And so what that means is uh, every year, on top of our tithe, another 15 to 20% of money that we receive as offerings leaves this place to go other places for the ministry. It's very hard. I'm gonna brag about this. I'm proud of it. It's very hard to find a church that gives away 30% of its income to other ministries. Now, churches will spend money in doing ministry, but to give it away, to sow it, that's how strong we, we believe in this. And you can't talk me out of it because the other 70% that we are allowed to keep, we do so much ministry with it, I wouldn't know what to do or how to do anything if we kept all that money. So I want you to know that even though I'm teaching this, we practice this firsthand in our own lives, even down to my infants. They're tithing before they're ever born. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, how you sow is how you reap. It's a New Testament guideline. If you sow begrudgingly, your job's gonna be begrudging because that's where you reap. You sow joyfully, your job's gonna be joyful because that's how you reap. You sow with a clenched fist, you're gonna be uh, reaping with a clenched fist. But if you sow openly and joyfully and bountifully, you're gonna reap that way as well. Give cheerfully, not grudgingly. That's what we got to do. Joyful. That's the whole reason Cain was rejected. He lacked the good attitude. And then we want to give to those who teach the word. 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that. We give to those who preach the word, who live by the pulpit. A lot of Christians are guilty of giving away God's money to charitable donations. 
I don't suppose there's anything wrong with like United Way or UNICEF or whatever your non-for-profit is. But if you're not tithing first, will a man rob God to finance secular do-goodism? If you tithe and give offerings to God and then you want to give, I think you're okay. But if you're going to rob God to give money to UNICEF or, you know, planned puppyhood or something, there's something wrong with that. God saved you, not the Red Cross. God saved you, not UNICEF. God saved you, not, uh, I don't know, uh, Wounded Warrior Project. These all have good causes, but they're not the, car- the kingdom. They're not the church. We want to make sure we're giving to those who teach and preach the word. If they have sown unto us spiritual things, they have every right to reap our natural. So last few points here. Reasons for giving. We give to the church to support those in need, such as widows and hurting churches. We bring our money together. We pool it together, in a sense, in the local church. So the church can then re-harness it for the assignments God gives it. We, We tithe and give that there might be meat or supplies in God's house. And the supplies here, they run the ministry. They put the lights on. They pay salary. It takes salaried staff to run a ministry, uh, to pay uh, utility bills and repairness, repair bills. Did you know under the Old Testament, there is an offering commanded every year by Moses for the care and maintenance of the tabernacle? Did you know that? Jehoiada the high priest reinstituted that to repair Solomon's temple in the day of King Jehoash. There was a law commanded by Moses to receive a offering on a regular basis for the care and maintenance of the Lord's house. One of the reasons we give offerings today. To support the gospel preacher. Takes money to preach. The gospel's free, but it doesn't preach for free. To honor God. 2 Samuel 23, 16 lets us know that giving honors God. It honors God with, by demonstrating to him our liberality and our trust. We do it to demonstrate our trust in his way of doing things. It makes no sense for us to give money away. When I used to do my own taxes with uh, software and I'd enter all my charitable givings and it was always to Christian church, my church, mostly my church and then missionaries and guest ministers. The TurboTax or whatever the software was, when I would click, it would see how high a percentage of my giving it was. It would say, is this right? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Do you want to double check? No, you have to keep reminding you, this doesn't look feasible. I think, let me brag, I'm not here today, but the most I ever gave as a single man with a career, I once nearly gave 40% one year of my income to the gospel, which I'm very proud of. Uh, I, I kind of rose and rose and rose and then peaked and then went to Bible school and couldn't afford to give that much anymore and then got married. And, and so we're not at 40% anymore, but we definitely hover around 20% or so, 18, 20, 22. It kind of goes like this. Sometimes more, sometimes less. To demonstrate trust in his way of doing things. To take care of God's house. This sews the holes up in your bag. Haggai says, the reason you don't prosper is because you bless yourself and not the house of God. That's Haggai chapter one. And he said, and because you bless yourself and neglect my house, you're never gonna have enough to eat and you're never gonna be warm even though you put on jackets. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, we sow in order to have something to reap. I hope this has been a good introductory lesson and maybe have taught you some things you had never seen before on tithes and offerings. My heart is that you would be a tither. Listen, not, not that I need your money. There's not a single giver in this church that makes or breaks this church. But I've told folks many times, uh, I don't need you to tithe. You need you to tithe. I don't need you to give offerings. 
You need get you to give offerings. We've had f- folks leave, take their tithes, rob the tithe. It hasn't ever hurt us a bit. We just continually do this as a ministry. We've always had every dollar we've ever needed to preach the gospel. You should know me by now. I don't live lavishly. I live very meek. I'm not into money. I'm not a money guy. I like excellence. I like quality, but I'm not a name brand guy. Uh, I'm not in this for money. I I live on a salary. I also do geologic consulting on the side when I need extra money for big offerings. I believe God for the hours. People call me up. I get to consult, use my degree, make good money. That always all goes into the kingdom. So we're not here to take your money. We're here to help you worship God and receive your offering and pray over you. I don't need you to tithe. You need you to tithe so God can do his will in your life. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson on tithes and offerings. I trust these families are blessed. May this word return to you with tremendous fruit. May you be able to bless your families. In Jesus' name, amen.